Jesus' death on the cross, looking at his life, uh, what he was doing, the words that he was speaking, um, leading up to what we know as Easter. Um, And so just to recap kind of where we've been so far, and then I'll tell you where we're going today and have a have a quick pray together. Um, So we looked, Ed kind of started this series by looking at Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, um, riding on a donkey. Uh, People were expecting their Messiah to come with militant power and might, and in comes their King Jesus riding on a donkey, um, humble and weeping over Jerusalem. We've looked at him cleansing the table, so flipping tables when he was looking for hearts that love him and instead he found exploitation and greed. Um, We looked at Jesus in this, so this is all in the week before his death, we looked at him setting forth the greatest commandment that he is looking for hearts that love him and we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind Um, and we had last the week before last week, last week was at AGM, um, looked at Jesus the truth. So in the midst of all this, Jesus sets forth these amazing teachings, challenging us to um, not be deceived, to know Christ for who he really is and to know things from his perspective. Um, And so this is kind of leading up to where we get to today. And we're going to be looking at Mark 14 today specifically the first nine verses. Um, It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I I say that a lot, but I really, really love it. Um, And and so just in the context of what I've just said, we looked at, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, a week before he's about to hang on the cross for the sake of love, he's asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is it that you are looking for above everything else? And he says, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. So we see his kind of quest for he is looking for hearts that respond to him. Out of everything, the God of heaven wants voluntary love. And we reach this scenario and we see a really clear picture of what Jesus is looking for, which is why I love it. It challenges me every time I read it, but there's so much we can, we can glean from it. Um, I'm going to pray, then we'll read the passage. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are a teacher. You are the one who searches the deep things of God, and you're also the one who lives on the inside of us. So Holy Spirit, as you search the deep things of God, would you show them to us? As we dive into your living word together, let the truth of who you are be written on our hearts. God, I ask that you would help me to say what you want me to say and only what you want me to say. I ask that you would help us all to hear with your ears. God, I ask that where we need to be challenged, we'll be challenged. Where we need to be comforted, we'll be comforted. Lord, I thank you that your word is alive. It's active, it's living, and there's power in it. So as we read your word, come and do what only you can do on the inside of us and transform us. Lord, I have faith to leave here changed because of the power of your word. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, let's read Mark 14, verses 3 to 9. Sorry if that's small. I am going to read it out loud. You can follow along on other devices if you want. 
Um, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. An amazing passage. Um, Now, I just want to start by giving a bit of context and... um, For some of you, this information will be helpful and you'll love it. For some of you, you're not dates, facts, figures, people. I lean on that side. But for those of you who this is helpful for, um, so there are four accounts of Jesus being anointed throughout the Gospels. There's one in each Gospel. So Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 6, and John 12. And um, there are... At the, at the end, <laughs> um, there are lots of kind of debates and discussions about um, if this is the same scenario that is being retold in each of the Gospels or if they're different. Now, there are loads of different views out there. Um, I've landed on one that I think, but this is what I'm calling Alicia's best guess. So if you've studied, studied these passages and have come to a different conclusion, wonderful. If you're inspired in this session to go and study these passages and in doing so you come to a different conclusion, great. I am not saying that I'm right. I'm saying this is what I think. (laughs) Um, So I, in kind of looking at where the scenarios take place, who's present and what is said in each of these kind of accounts, my best guess um, is that Matthew, Mark and John are all referring to the same scenario just because of timing, there's a slight difference in when they, like by a few days of when they say it happens. But then Luke 6 is a completely different um, location. So Jesus in a different region, the, the whole way it's framed is different, the focus is different. So my best guess, and you'll see why I'm even bothering to tell you this, is that the passage in Matthew 26, the passage in John 12, and the passage in Mark 14 that we're looking at are the same account, and Luke 6, I believe, is a different one. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, Now, I'm telling you that because there are also different views about who is doing the anointing, (laughs) and in the conclusion that I've come to, that the passage in John is the same as the passage in Matthew and Mark, just being told by different people in slightly different ways, then i I've come to the conclusion that the person doing the anointing is the character known in the Bible as Mary of Bethany. So this is the Mary of Bethany who is sat at the feet of Jesus listening to his word that her sister Martha comes to and says, why aren't you serving with me? So it's that Mary of Bethany. It's the Mary of Bethany we see present when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead because Mary is Lazarus's sister. And I believe that it's this same Mary that we see doing the anointing here. So that is just a bit of context um, because Mark 14 doesn't say specifically Mary. It says a woman. So I just want to be clear 
that most of what I'm going to say today is actually just focusing on this extravagant act of worship. Um, I make a few links to Mary of Bethany because I think that's who it was. If you disagree, that's totally fine. Um, but that's my train of thought when I say that name. So I hope that is helpful. So Mary of Bethany is one of my um, heroes. Um, and I'm actually going to be speaking on her in a few weeks' time. Um, so when I kind of got this preach, I was really excited, but also had to be very kind of strict with myself that I would only really focus on this passage because otherwise I'm just going to do my entire preach that I'd already had planned for a few weeks' time. So bear with me. It's going to be fine. Um, we, I really believe that even on this one passage alone, there is a lot to learn. And I want to look at this woman's worship and what we can learn about Christ through this. So there's four things that um, I think we can tell about her worship in this situation. And that is that her worship was unashamed, her worship was costly, her worship was vindicated, and her worship had lasting impact. Um, let's look at the first one. So I just want to kind of paint the picture of the scene here. Um, so you've got a dinner party happening. This is a week before, well, not even, a few days before Jesus is about to die on the cross. You've got a dinner party happening, um, and Mark says that it's at the house of Simon the leper. doesn't give any other details. John, the, the, the account in John makes it very clear that Lazarus is also present. So I just want you to kind of feel the weight of that, because Simon the leper... We don't know who he is. There's lots of debates around that too. My guess, by the fact that it's included that he's a leper, is that this is someone that Jesus has healed and is now having dinner with them. This was someone who was an outcast of society. If you had leprosy at the time, you were completely untouchable. No one wanted anything to do with you. You're on the outskirts. And yet it's this person's house that the dinner party is taking place in. And then you've got Lazarus. <laughs> at the dinner party. Now, Lazarus, a few days ago, was dead. <laughs> Have you ever had dinner with a dead person? <laughs> now, this sounds like a dinner party that I want to be at, because can you imagine the questions? Lazarus, what on earth was it like when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and you found yourself standing on the outside of your grave, wearing grave clothes after being dead for three days? That is the question that I'll be asking. If Simon the leper was indeed there, I don't know. I would be like, Simon, how on earth does it feel that someone has actually touched you with kindness? What did that look like when Jesus stretched out his hand or spoke a word and you got healed and you're now back in the society? You have a family. Tell me what it looks like. I want to be at that dinner party. And yet, it is in this kind of jolly old time that Jesus is sat there and you can be pretty sure that the cross is on his mind. In the last kind of days of his ministry, Jesus made it really, really clear that he knew what was coming. He said lots about the Son of God is about to be offered up, lifted up. The Son of God is going to suffer and he's going to die. And here he is. He knows what's coming. And so in this jolly dinner party, guaranteed that he is feeling the weight of what is going to come, probably some sorrow mixed with the joy of being with his friends. And it's in this context that in walks Mary. And just to give a slight bit more of context, 
Mary should not have been at this dinner party. In the, in the time that this happened, Mary's place would have definitely be to be in the kitchen serving, which is why Martha got so angry with her when she wasn't before as well. So she's got a habit of this, not being where she's meant to be, according to society's terms. And yet, there's not only men, there's this well-known religious leader, Jesus, and yet she doesn't care in the slightest. In walks this young girl with one intention, unashamed, before she's even done this extravagant, costly, outrageous act of worship, there will have been eyebrows raised at the very fact that she was even in the room. And yet in she walks with eyes for only one, fully, fully aware of the one that was before her. Now, the reason that I spent a bit of time explaining that I really believe that this is Mary of Bethany is because I think it speaks a lot about her motivation in this moment. She had just seen her brother raised from the dead by Jesus. On top of that, she had sat a few weeks earlier at his feet when everyone else was arguing about who was going to be the greatest and who was going to serve and all of that. She had sat at his feet and just listened to him. Now, do I believe that it was a attitude, uh, an expression of extreme gratitude at having her brother alive again? Yes. I think it was more than that. I think that Mary knew what was going to happen because Jesus had been making it very, very clear over the last few days and all of the disciples had missed it, <laughs> arguing about who was going to be the greatest, arguing about um, where they were going to be sat in heaven when Jesus was trying to share the secrets of his heart with his friends. But I think that Mary, in her position of listening and hearing and sitting ready to receive, had caught a glimpse of something that her friend was going to suffer and that she was determined that her friend, her king, her savior would not go to the grave without being lavishly honored and worshipped like he was meant to be. Now, if you contrast this to a few days ago when we've seen Jesus, the king, entering, on, entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, and everyone worshipped him. They threw coats, they threw palm leaves, they said, Hosanna, here he comes. And yet, a few days later, they're killing him because they were worshipping who they wanted him to be, not who he actually was. And yet Mary, fully aware of the one that was in front of her, was worshipping him for who he actually was. She knew what was going to come. Her heart was broken. Her heart was moved. And she unashamed um, entered into this house. Mary knew exactly who was before her. She worshipped him not for who she wanted him to be, but for the truth of who he is. She knew it was fundamentally wrong for Jesus to go to the grave without being lavishly honoured. In the light of his unashamed, extravagant love, an unashamed, extravagant response became the only viable option. So there she stood in the middle of this dinner party. And as if it wasn't weird enough, her being in the room, what she does next is scandalous. <laughs> she's not just there, but she's carrying something. She gets her costly perfume, and in the middle of the buzzing crowd, where there's probably questions being asked about what it's like to be raised from the dead and all of that, Mary takes this bottle of extremely costly perfume and she breaks it. Now, can you imagine if you're in the middle of a dinner party and someone comes in carrying a bottle of perfume and breaks it and starts to pour the contents over someone's head? The whole room is going to stop. Silence. I can picture it now until the accusation starts. <laughs> 
So point two, her worship is costly. Now, in the account in John, it tells us that Judas started it, but Mark and Matthew make it clear that the others didn't take long to join in. We see in verses four to five, why was the ointment ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, 300 denarii is about 300 days worth of wages. So in our terms, people argue about this too, they reckon it's worth anywhere between 20,000, 40,000 pounds, this bottle of perfume. So I'm going to go with 30,000 because I like to be right in the middle. And so you can imagine the accusation, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> 30,000 pounds, I don't know about for you guys, but that is a lot of money to me. And yet Mary, without hesitation, breaks it and pours it over Jesus. And so the worst, I don't know about you, but the worst kind of accusation for me is the accusation that's actually true. <laughs> she didn't have a leg to stand on. In natural senses, this was a really, really dumb decision. She was wasting everything on this man who she didn't properly know and who was about to die in three days. So another bit of history that is really insightful is that that when you have one of these kind of jars of ointment back in those times, because of the value of it, it is most likely that this was some kind of family heirloom that was passed on, some kind of dowry, some kind of inheritance. So it is something extremely significant. So for Mary to break this over the head of Jesus is for her to say, I give you my past. There's probably significant memories attached to that. It's speculation, but it's likely that her parents are no longer around if she's in possession of that. So there's memories. I give you my present that which I hold most valuable to me, I give it to you. And I give you my future. For her to waste that amount of money, that is her inheritance. If she never gets married, if she doesn't, it was very different back then. If she was never to have the future that everyone hoped she would have, that pot was meant to be the thing that would keep her provided for, for her life. And she said, I'm going to waste it all. Past, present, and future. It represents all that she has. Now, some people might say, well, maybe she just didn't know. <laughs> maybe she, you know, got home, put on an episode of the Antiques Roadshow, and there was a pot just like hers, and someone said, oh, I've got great news for you, Susan. This pot is worth 30,000 pounds. And Susan, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize. And Mary was watching and thought, well, darn it. Blew that one. I don't think it was like that at all, because this would have been her inheritance. There would be no doubt in her mind about what she was doing. It was a choice to give gladly all that she has with the knowledge that she's never going to get that back. (laughs) You can't scoop up oil off of someone's head and try and put it back in a jar. She sees the worthiness of this man. Now, another bit of contrast that I love is in a few hours... Judas is about to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in the day, 30 pieces of silver is the average price that one would pay for a slave. So to Judas, Jesus is nothing more than a slave to his own needs. But in Mary's mind, Jesus is worth everything. He is everything to her. And so in this costly moment, accusation starts. 
What are you doing? Do you know how much good that could do? What a waste. And think about the ones that are criticizing her. This is a room full of disciples. This is a room full of the people who in 50 days, the spirit is going to be poured out upon them. And they are going to go and preach to hundreds of people. And revival is going to start. Hundreds of people are going to give their lives. They're like the super apostles. And yet they're the very ones that are saying, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) Accusation is bad enough without it coming from trusted religious leaders. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that position where people of authority have accused what you're doing and come at you with, you're wasting your life. It's not a nice place to be. And yet, she stands undeterred. These are the ones that know him. They're about to preach. They're about to see hundreds turn to God. And yet, it's these guys that criticize Mary. You know, there is something about extravagant devotion that exposes the barrenness of everyone else's hearts around them. When you choose something that is costly, you automatically walk into accusation because people don't understand it. Not only do they not understand it, it challenges the fact that they wouldn't be willing to give that thing up. Whenever you choose to live in extravagant devotion, expect to be criticized sharply. I wonder if you guys have ever seen this face. Anyone know who this is? This is a guy called John Allen Chow, Cho. Um, and in November last year, this man was killed trying to take the gospel to um, a little island where no one had been able to ever make contact with a Centralese can't say that word tribe. And um, John, a guy in his 20s, was really burdened by this and tried to take the gospel there and made all these plans and um, was pretty much instantly killed when he stepped onto the island. And this, this story kind of blew up. And all over Facebook last year, there was accusation after accusation after accusation after accusation, all coming from Christians he wasn't prepared. What a stupid thing to do. How selfish. What a waste of a young life. Let me just read you. There's another picture here. That's his diary entry. You can't actually read it. He didn't have the best writing, but let me read what it says to you. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe are at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshipping in their own language, as Revelation 7 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Now, I am not standing here trying to glamorize martyrdom and missionaries, and maybe he did make mistakes. There were, but my whole thing with this is that the reaction of the church to this was shocking because we don't understand extravagant waste. Let me show you another guy. Does anyone know who this guy is? This is a guy called Nate Saint. Who This is about 60 years ago. So this guy is very much like John Chow. Um, Very similar story. So Nate and 
four of his friends went as missionaries to another island and um, seeking to bring the gospel to an unreached people group that had had no contact with the world. And they made multiple successful contact point meetings. And on the fifth time, all five of them were killed. Um, But what didn't happen is... No, what, what did happen, I should say, is that in the light of the death of these guys who were accused, saying, you're wasting your life, what on earth are you doing? Hundreds more missionaries were fired up to go and reach these people. The wife of one of them and the sister of another one of them carried on the work and said, my husband, my brother did not die in vain. So they carried on the work, eventually built relationship with the tribe, The whole tribe came to know Jesus Christ and the guy who killed Nate Saint ended up baptizing Nate's son because their children were accepted into the tribe. It looks like waste in a moment, but it bears significant eternal impact. This is a quote from Nate. And people who do not know the Lord ask, why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries? They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. Again, I'm not saying we all need to go to far out islands and get killed. (laughs) What I am saying is that when accusation comes, you're wasting your life. Just let this quote be in your mind. Has this costly decision that I've made Is it bearing eternal significance? Because we are all wasting our life on something. It's just what we're wasting it on that is the challenge and the question. You know, there's stories in this room. I'm I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to go into all of them. Um, I think of John Kirkby, who quit uh, a good job to start a ministry with a tenor because he felt like God was worth it. I think of people who... It makes no sense. They've left everything. They've moved to Bradford following God's call and everything's gone wrong. I think of people who have really, really embraced the cost. My, um, my personal example is nothing as extravagant. I, uh, I went to America and I studied and I, was, I spent a lot of time in a prayer room. And even that. So I was the last year that could have got university for three grand a year. And uh, so weekly, and I had no intention of going, I'm not against university, it just wasn't my thing. And weekly I was pulled into the school offices by every senior member of staff possible and said, you are wasting your life. Like your grades are okay, you're going to mistake, this is a mistake, this is a mistake, you're gonna, you could save so much more money, you're going to end up in so much debt if you go to university, da 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 da. I had a, a Christian friend print off 30 pages of the internet and send it off from my pe- to my parents about why I was joining a cult and why it was a bad idea. And it was like, people who love Jesus. I was like, I just want to worship him. <laughs> I know it will cost me way more money if I choose to go to university at a different time, but at this moment, I don't care. And the thing is that things that seem wise in the natural are foolish in the kingdom and vice versa. With my story, I wouldn't change it for a moment. Anyway, Mary's worship was costly. But it was vindicated. So Jesus said to her, leave her alone. 
Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I just really want us all to grasp this, that there was one voice in that room that mattered. There were loads of accusations, but there was one voice that actually bared any significance and weight, and he said, leave her alone. (laughs) She's chosen something beautiful. She's chosen something good. So if there's anyone in this room who's in the accusation part, you've given up something, you've made a choice to follow Jesus, you've given something costly, and everyone is against you, there is one voice that matters, and he's saying, you leave them alone. They've done something beautiful for me. And then her worship had a lasting impact. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is insane. (laughs) Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, the story of this little girl will be proclaimed. Jesus has forever tied his own story to a little girl who broke a jar of perfume over his head. That's how much he was moved. And the thing is, our devotion moves him just as much. You know, preaching can move the heart of men. Acts of service can move the heart of men. But devotion, whether it's worship, in whatever way that looks like, you making those daily decisions to love God when no one sees and everyone doesn't understand, move the heart of God. I would rather move the heart of God than men any day. And what's more than that, (laughs) I love thinking about this. Have you ever tried to get oil off of yourself? Like it sticks. (laughs) Sticks like glue. Jesus didn't just have a little splodge on his head. You know when we anoint people like we do? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) He had been broken over, was drenched in it, and he's about to go on the cross. So keep this in mind, that when Jesus was being scourged, 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 I don't know how you say that word, whipped, when he's being beaten, when he stood before Pilate, guess what he's smelling? The worship of Mary. There's one person who had given him what his heart was longing for, voluntary love. When he was on the cross, what's he smelling? (laughs) Perfume. But what's also awesome is that you can guarantee that Mary got some on herself too. So when Jesus is hung on the cross and there is the stench of death and decay all around them, there are only two people on that hillside that smell like worship. And one of them is the king on the cross and the other one is watching, weeping over her friend. And doesn't the Bible say that the prayers of the saints are like sweet-smelling incense? Every time that you open your mouth, every time that you respond to God, it is a sweet-smelling fragrance. And I can guarantee that he is just as moved as he was when he was hung on the cross, smelling and letting that be the joy that was set before him. We can move men for a moment but our worship lifestyle can move the heart of God forever. Our foolish to the world choices can have eternal impact. I need to wrap up. Um, There's a few people that I'd like to pray for today. Um, I'm going to ask if Mark will just come and play, if that's okay. And then I think in a few minutes the kids are going to come and close out for us. Um, But there's a few different categories of people. The first one, 
Mary's extravagant response to Jesus would not have been possible if she didn't know how much she was loved. You can't respond to something you don't understand. And it was his extravagance towards her that demanded a response in her. So the first group of people I really want to, to pray for are the people who say, I actually don't know anything about the love of God. How could I possibly respond if I've not experienced this? Because he really wants you to experience his love. He's good and he's kind. The second group of people are the ones that say, I'm right in the accusation moment. I've made the decision. It seemed great at the time. I really felt like it was from God, but everything has gone wrong since. And all I'm hearing is accusation because I really want you to hear God over you today saying, you leave my kid alone. They've chosen something really beautiful. And the third people are, which is probably most of us in this room, I definitely fall into this category, are people that just look at the life of Mary and go, gosh, I fall so short, but I really want to love God extravagantly. The Holy Spirit is a helper. This is never something possible in our own flesh, but he is moved and wants to help us. So I just, as we sing... I'm going to pray over you, and you can personally respond to God. If you do want someone to pray for you over any of those things, please come forward. There's no pressure to. I'll be here. Maybe the people who are going to be on the prayer space um, can also join me. Um, But the worship will be going on, so if you'd rather respond to God personally, then please do that. I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship. Jesus, we look to you, the one who withheld nothing the one who counted it joy to lay your all down for the sake of love. Lord, and where this woman, two days before you hung on the cross, said, just as you give everything, Savior, I want to give everything. Lord, that's my prayer today. That's our prayer today. Whatever giving our all looks like in this moment, we respond to you. Lord, I want to pray right now for anyone in this room who has never experienced your extravagant love. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would rest on hearts right now. That your deep, vast, wide, extravagant love would wash over people. Comforter, be close. Father, be close. Father, I lift up everyone who is under the weight of accusation the ones that have made costly, hard decisions and now are being accused left, right and center. Lord, let your voice thunder over them today. Leave them alone. Jesus, yours is the only voice that can silence the accuser. So would you do it in this room today? Would you speak over hearts? Would hearts be comforted and strengthened to press on, to run the race ahead of them? And Lord, for myself and anyone who echoes this. Lord, I just say, help. Help me love you. My nature is to cling to what I know, to not take the risk, to want to be safe and comfortable when there is an open invitation to be extravagant. Lord, I want to be extravagant. Whatever I have, it might not be much, but I don't want to move the hearts of men for a moment. I want to move the heart of God forever. Let my worship make a lasting impact. May it be a sweet-smelling fragrance to you. Amen. Let's worship, and if anyone does want someone to stand with them in prayer, you're welcome to come forward.